We're going to be reading from Genesis 1. So go ahead and take your Bibles, turn there, and stand for the reading of God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the, on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, 
and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which, he, which God had created and made. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We on? We on? We hear it all right? Good. The Thank you, Mark and Isaiah, for reading uh, this morning the creation uh, passage of Scripture. Um, it's a good place to start. It's a great beginning. And as we'll see, it's uh, foundational for uh, the rest of the book of Genesis, but foundational for the whole of Scripture. Amen? What we just read. So uh, let's pray, and then let's have our Bibles uh, opened and ears tuned in to what the Lord would desire to teach us this morning. Almighty, infinite Father, we thank you for your creative handiwork. The heavens declare your glory. How excellent is your name in all the earth. You alone are God, you're seated on the throne. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Your dominion and rule is over all things. You spoke this word into being. You shaped and fashioned man and woman, male and female. You made them. You breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And you have set us in this place as representatives of your kingdom. Help us to see that we are not our own. You made us and you've bought us by the lifeblood of your Son, Jesus. God, we turn to this first book of the Bible, Genesis. As we take road trips through the Scriptures this summer, help us never forget that this Word is your revelation to man. You are speaking. You are working. You are moving. You are initiating. You are the creator, you're the great I am. And yet you are our loving Heavenly Father, tender and compassionate to your oftentimes erring children. 
as God who reigns above in majesty supreme, may we humbly submit ourselves to you on this journey. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes each week in this series, piece together by your Holy Spirit the truths of your word. Help us see the connections in the text. Show us how 66 books point to one main attraction. And I pray, Father, that we not miss the main attraction. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us as we survey the terrain of your holy word this summer. May we grow in you and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we say the words road trip, and there's probably an immediate response that you have to someone talking about a road trip. Road trip. Typically, you have a captivated audience when you are talking about a road trip. We're going on a road trip. The idea creates this stirring within us, this longing to discover. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to go on a road trip with the boys. We drove out to Branson, Missouri for a few days and were able to enjoy one another's company as we watched some basketball going on for a couple days. The road trip was a lot of fun. We enjoyed our time. For the past 10 years or so, I've enjoyed the road trip going to Cleveland to a preaching conference, Parkside Church. It's been a great road trip. It's been a very refreshing road trip, getaway, sitting under the authority of God's Word. I can remember when I played basketball years ago, I enjoyed the Home games, they were great, but in all honesty, the road trips were the best. The road trips were the best. Typically, we rode in, a, in some kind of bus, chartered bus. Uh, we ate out. We, um, you know, we would, if it was a long enough trip, we'd stay in a hotel. You know, it got to leave school early. All those fun things that, that a college student uh, perhaps looks forward to. Road trip. I remember, in fact, in in the days in college, I remember when someone came by the dorm and someone said, is anyone up for a road trip? That equated to, does anyone desire to go on a late night run to Taco Bell? That's what that meant. Anyone want to go? Anyone go on a road trip? One of our favorite road trips as a family is just up the road about 40 miles from the house in a small town called Upland. And they've got some wonderful nachos and some wonderful ice cream I'm sure none of you all here like nachos or ice cream. Uh, Wonderful place, wonderful road trip. Road trips have typically a start and an end to them. There's usually a main point of attraction. You go on a road trip to see something or experience something or see someone. A road trip is typically associated with a drive in the car, a time of sharing together, camaraderie. Enjoying one another's company, sharing a common bond or interests for the next few months. We're going on some road trips together. Are you ready? We're going to go. And today we begin. Our first road trip is going to be in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. 
Today's road trip covers about 1,500 miles in approximately 2,300 years. Woo! That's a long road trip. I'd like you to think of each road trip as a reserved number. Some of your small children, I know some of our small children have done this. You familiar with the coloring by number? Any of you little ones ever colored by number? A picture in your coloring book, it's got one Color all the ones blue, color all the twos green, all the threes red, etc. I was thinking of this study and thought, wow, wouldn't it be neat just to imagine numbers 1 through 66 on this big giant coloring page waiting to be colored in. And today's word will color in a good portion of the picture of the gospel. In fact, the book of Genesis shades in a good portion of the gospel story. Did you know that? A good portion of the gospel story is right here in Genesis. Once the shading is done today, you will have a colored frame, if you will, within which to color the remainder of the books. Genesis frames the gospel truth. I have some visuals up here just to kind of associate what we're talking about with some objects Genesis is going to frame, in many ways, this gospel truth, and especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis. My my purpose in this series is to equip you with the necessary tools for making your way around the Bible. We're not going to be going in-depth into the study of Adam and Eve today. We're not going to be going and diving into uh, Noah and the ark today, nor are we going to study out the life of Abraham today, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Joseph Those would be all great studies. My hope is that as we go on these road trips, you begin to understand the place and the purpose for these books in God's Holy Scripture. That you begin to see the connected strands of each book to the big picture that's being presented in His Word. The objective each week is to, like, uh, like a diamond being turned. They say you can see the brilliance of it as it turns and you see all the facets of that diamond. I, I think in some ways this study is intended to be that. Getting to see the brilliance of each God-breathed book. Its intention, its place in the canon of Scripture. I, I want you, church, to know this story. This Christian story. Story, as uh, author Greg Kukul in his book, The Story of Reality. Uh, I'll be probably using some uh, of his book uh, throughout our time. He, he actually takes, uh, in a very small amount of time, he takes a, uh, a dive into the whole of Scripture and, and really pairs down in many ways uh, the big ideas of God's Word. Um, Greg Kukul is, a, is not only an author, but he's an apologist. He's a defender of the Christian scripture. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful uh, to, to have read at least a part of his book up to this point. And some of the things that he shared in there have been helpful for me. And I want to share a couple of those things this morning with you. And he refers to God's word as the Christian story. He's very clear to say that the Christian story is not a made-up story. In fact, the title of the book is The Story of Reality. He says it's the real truth. This is not a fiction story. This is real history. And so this Christian story is one I would desire for all of us in here to know 
the big idea of God's Bible, knowing this book from Genesis to Revelation will provide you with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence, strength, strength that's not your own, and assurance. There's no need to fear when we have an understanding of this word. Assurance as a good soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. It will equip you with anchors to hold on to when the storms of life come. Anyone here ever climbed a wall? Wall climbers? Anybody ever done that? Climbed a wall? You're familiar with it? A couple of you have. You know that when you're climbing a wall, you have those little pegs, right, on the board? And you reach and you grab one of those to hold on to. And you grab another one, and they're kind of scattered throughout, and you're climbing up the wall. Well, those anchor points or those pegs, really in many ways, it's what I'm hoping each of these road trips will be helpful for, that each book study will serve as a handle to hold on to God's Word, another firm grasp onto God's Word. So think of this series as an opportunity for you to grow in your relationship with God and His Word. Is there anyone here interested in making progress in the faith? Anyone interested? I hope all the hands go up. I hope we're all interested in making progress in the faith. Maturing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you here who do not yet have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my hope and prayer that through this study perhaps that will also happen and occur. Well the road trips for the month of June. Today as we spoke we're going to be in Genesis. June 11th we'll be in Exodus June 18th, Father's Day, we're going to be in Leviticus. Isn't that a great, appropriate book for Father's Day? Dads, you've got something to look forward to. The book of Leviticus. And then June 25th, we're going to be at Westwood Park on that Sunday. And we're going to, on that Sunday, we're going to be in a road trip in the book of Numbers. So that's where we're going for the next four weeks. Well, if we turn to the book of Genesis, and I know in my own Bible, from page 3 all the way to page 40 is the book of Genesis. And by all indicators, it's the longest road trip in the scriptures. Longest not in terms of chapters, but in length of time that's described. The book encompasses approximately 2,300 years, give or take, of history. And as you make your way to the book of Genesis... There's a whole lot we could talk about. Amen? We could talk about a whole lot of things. Issues abound today from the well of this first book of the Bible, Genesis. There's lots of discrepancy. There's lots of debates. There's lots of disagreement about this particular book. Why? In large part, I believe it has to do with its placement in the scriptures. What place does it hold? It's the first one. As the first book, it deals with and provides a biblical frame. I brought an old window to serve as a frame. It's a frame, and this frame is a window through which I view things. What we're going to see in some ways, in many ways perhaps, the book of Genesis is a way that we see what reality is. Or maybe you're familiar with the term worldview. What is your worldview of the way things are, the way things operate, the way things work, how you came to be? 
This first book gives meaning, it gives hope, it gives encouragement, it gives warning, it gives promises and patterns. It's a book that provides God's answers to some of life's biggest questions. Did you know that? Let me give you a few of the big questions. Like, who is God? That's a pretty big one. Or, why am I here? What's my purpose for being here? Or, what is sin? Where'd sin come from? Or, where did death come from? Why does God allow evil to exist today? Is God really a good God if evil exists today? Have you heard that one? (laughs) What can be done about sin's devastating effects? Woe is me. Sin has come. Oh, there's nothing we can do. Is there any hope? These are some great questions. And when you take a road trip through the book of Genesis, you encounter answers to these questions. Listen, the book of Genesis gives answers to those questions. It gives answers that a lot of people don't like to hear. But Genesis gives answers, gives meaning, gives reason to all of the big questions in life. Perhaps you've heard some of your friends or coworkers ask some of those big questions before. You know, if if cracks can be made in the original book, the, the, the first one, the placeholder in the scriptures, this place that describes where it all started, then Christianity can be shown false. Or so they think. You see, there are many who have set out on this journey, haven't they? In the past, there are some even yet today, setting out to undermine the foundations of the Christian faith. You know, Psalm 11.3, it's a familiar passage that that Answers in Genesis folks tend to put out as we think about foundations, right? It's, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There are critics of the gospel truth all around us. They're aiming at the foundations, church, and would be pleased, in fact, thrilled... To eliminate the entirety, just tear it out. The entirety of Genesis. If not the entirety, let's just rip out the first 11 chapters. So many would be thrilled if they could do that and achieve that. But if you look at the next few verses of that Psalm 11, it provides us with great hope and encouragement, even in the midst of foundations being targeted. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked, listen to the, to the wicked. The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, listen to what God will do. Judgment to come. Well, here's what's going to happen. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone. I'm preaching fire and brimstone. That's what the word says. That's what's going to come upon And a burning wind, it's going to be their lot. It's going to be their portion. So try as they might, the wicked will continue to bend their bows at the foundation of the Christian story. But when we understand the word rightly, we understand that the Lord overcomes. The Lord is mighty to save. The Lord is watching. The Lord is righteous. He will sift the wicked in the end. God is testing his own in the meantime to see if they are going to remain faithful. Let me give you some things that might help you stay firm, stay grounded, stay solid in your understanding of God's truth. Henry Morris has written a wonderful book 
on the, really centered in the book of Genesis. Uh, really appreciated many of the things that he shared about that. And, and here, here's one of the, the things that he, he comes up with to, to help us uh, stay grounded. He said the book of Genesis has 200 references in the New Testament. The book of Genesis has 200 references. In fact, they're all right here, page after page of references from Genesis and the reference in the New Testament. They're all here. Either direct quotes or allusions to the book of Genesis. 200 of them. Did you know that only three New Testament books are absent of any reference to or allusion to Genesis? Philemon, 2 John, 3 John. Those are the only three. How many New Testament books do we have? 27. So if you do some math, uh, a very high percentage of New Testament books actually make reference to Genesis. Okay? That ought to be helpful for us in holding on to, to, to the truth and the validity of Genesis. Out of those 200 New Testament references, over 100 take you to Genesis 1 through 11. Right? If we keep paring down some of these numbers, we see 63 of those references out of 200, 63 of them are quoted or cited in Genesis 1 through 3 alone. Fifty-eight New Testament references to Abraham. Fourteen New Testament references to the flood, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And Jesus himself either quotes or refers to Genesis 25 times. Do you think Genesis is true? I mean, we, don't, we just stay within the scripture and we can see without a doubt Jesus and the prophets and, 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 the, and the epistles, they're, they're pointing to the truth of Genesis. You remember when they came to Jesus and they were saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, and Jesus says, well, you know, Moses it's, it's, has made the, it's, it's the allowance that's there. But he goes on, he says... It was not that way from the beginning. And then what does he quote? Genesis 2.24. You see, it's important for us to understand the Bible in the New Testament, which is all the Old Testament's pointing forward to this one main attraction we know as Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And the New Testament is, keeps going backward and quoting and relying upon and standing upon a firm foundation that was there and available in the Old Testament. So this Christian story provides a, a comprehensive explanation for all of life. God's word provides an explanation for the world, for you being here, for your purpose and stay here, and for what's yet to come. Travel the road of the scriptures, and you gain understanding, you gain wisdom, you take in knowledge, you absorb his truth, and your life then begins to change I'm hoping that you desire your life to change and mature and grow as you put the pieces of his word together. The story of the Bible really is, if we were to simplify it, it's the story of a, of a king. God is the king, right? God's the king. God has a kingdom. As servants, we've fallen short, or the Bible terminology is we've sinned against the king's commands. 
The king then provides a way of rescue for his servants. And one day the king is going to restore all the brokenness because he's promised to do so. This king is coming back one day to judge every single one of us. And one of the questions that remains is, are you going to be found a child of the king or a child of the devil? That's the story in short. Genesis, you see, is is likely written, many people believe that Genesis was written or at least edited or compiled by Moses. He's thought to be the writer of what we know as the books of the law or the Pentateuch, Pentateuch 5, first five books, right? The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By the way, if you do not know the books of the Bible, I'm hoping these road trips will encourage you to learn the books of the Bible. It's important we know how to navigate through the Bible. So these first five books, sometimes they're known actually as the books of Moses or the the Torah, uh, which means teachings, right? All different names for these first five books. I'd like to give you and have you think about this morning uh, some word pictures as we think about Genesis. We're on a road trip in Genesis and we're thinking about Genesis, this first book of the Bible. And I just brought a couple visuals for you to help you. Um, in fact, I wrote these up on the board. A border, a frame or a lens, and a foundation. So I have a floor puzzle. And on this floor puzzle down here, you may not be able to see it very well. You can stand up and look at it if you want to for a second. But it's a floor puzzle. And I, all I have is the border. It's just a border. It's important that you understand that the book of Genesis, in many ways, serves as a border for what comes after. The book of Genesis also serves as a frame or a lens through which we see what comes after. And I brought these bricks in just to kind of give us a visual of a foundation. Genesis provides a solid foundation upon which all the other books get built. Okay? So those are the three images I'd like you to be thinking through uh, with Genesis this morning. You know, the original Hebrew title of this book is, is from a word that actually means in beginning, which is very appropriate, by the way, church, because Genesis 1-1 begins in the beginning. However, our, our, our English Bibles actually go more with the Greek uh, title for the book. Uh, the Greek word has in mind source or, or origin or beginning or, or generation. It's, it's a translation of the Hebrew word toledoth, which we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history, or maybe in your translation, generation, right? This is the history or generation of the heavens and the earth. When you take a road trip through Genesis, you see these markers of origin quite frequently. How many of you have ever been on a historic home tour? Anybody? I, I took, took my wife on a historic home tour about a year or so ago in Noblesville. Some of the older homes in Noblesville. It was beautiful. It was really fun to be able to walk through. I really like to walk through and see those older homes and how they were made and constructed. There's something of value in those older homes or historic landmarks. Have you ever seen any historic landmarks? And there's, there's typically a sign that, that designates this is a historic landmark. There's usually some information you can read about that particular place. Well, Genesis is filled with historic landmarks, origins. 
And again, Henry Morris is helpful here. He, he kind of lays out a few helpful origins. I'm just going to give them to you in bullet fashion. Listen to all these origins in the book of Genesis. The origin of the universe. The origin of order and complexity. The origin of the solar system. The origin of the atmosphere and hydrosphere. Water and land, right? The heavens, the firmament. Where did all this come from? The origin of life. The origin of mankind. The origin of marriage and family. The origin of language. The origin of evil. I like what he says about evil. He says it's a temporary intrusion into God's perfect world. (laughs) The origin of government. The origin of culture. Origin of nations. Origin of religion. And the origin of the chosen people. And really as we look at Genesis, Genesis is tracking and charting this chosen people. The chosen people are called whom? Do you remember? Israel, or the Hebrew nation, right? God's chosen people. Well, in addition to origins, the book of Genesis is structured around generations. Eleven of them, to be exact. If you read your Bible, you'll see these. These aren't hidden, they're there. In fact, the first one there is Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the history, or genealogy, of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. We see this is the genealogy of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Genesis eleven twenty-seven. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah was the father of whom? Abraham, very good. Genesis 25, 12, this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Ishmael came about Abraham and, and, and Hagar, right? We see a few verses later in Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, the promised son. Genesis 36, 1 and Genesis 36, 9, the genealogy of Esau. And then Genesis 37, verse 2, the history of Jacob, and we see from 37 to 50 the life of Joseph, right? Origins, generations, but there's another way to frame and look through to see this book of Genesis. Not just origins, not just generations, but perhaps this one is the more important of the three. Covenants, covenants. I was reading it in my New King James translation at the beginning of Genesis. It had a, in the introduction, I thought it had a very helpful and simple rendering of a covenant. Three parts to a covenant. First of all, it's a statement about God's saving act. In other words, what does God bring to the covenant? Secondly, it's a statement about what God expects from humanity in response. So what God brings, that's the first part. And then second part, what God expects from humanity in response. Here's the third part of the covenant. It's a a sign or a symbol that reminds us of the covenant. Okay, so 
We see covenants in the book of Genesis. We see one with Adam. We see one with Noah, one with Abraham. In fact, if we, if we have your Bibles, just turn with me. i give you an example of this. I think it's helpful to see this in Genesis chapter 9. Turn there. Genesis chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, turn. you can go ahead and turn there. It's okay. You can look at it with me. In Genesis 9, and starting in verse 8, this is after they get off the ark. God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, listen to what God says. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. I'm establishing my covenant, he says, with you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. He's going to keep saying this. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. What's God bringing to the covenant? He's never again going to destroy the earth by way of flood. That's what he's promising. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. The sign, what's the sign? He's going to talk about the sign of the covenant. Okay? And and between every living creature for perpetual generations. Verse 13, I set my rainbow. What's the sign, church? The rainbow. The rainbow is the sign. The symbol, right? The rainbow is the reminder. And it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. How many times is he going to repeat what he's going to do? How many times is he going to repeat the significance of the symbol and the sign. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. One more time. Noah, I want you to get this. I want you to understand this. So Genesis has historic origins. It's structured by generations and it's built upon God's covenants or promises. We can frame the book. Another way we can frame the book and look, look and see through this book is, is by way of geographic setting. Geographic setting. Genesis 1 through 11 uh, takes place in general in the fertile, what we know as the Fertile Crescent, right? Those first 11 chapters. From 12 to 36, most of the story takes place in Canaan, in that general area. And then from 37 to 50, where does the story take place, church? Egypt. In Egypt. The scene shifts into Egypt. We can frame the book of Genesis by key events or, or key people, right? I was, I was reading, and, and I love the, the, the designations. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 being uh, what's called primitive history, where we have uh, essentially four events. We have creation in 1 and 2. We have the fall of man in 3, 4, and 5. We have the flood in 6, 7, and 8, 9. And then we have uh, confusion that takes place at the Tower of Babel, right? 10 and 11. So we have this primitive history, but we also have what's known as patriarchal history in 12 through 50. 
patriarchal history. And there are four key players in this. In Genesis 12 through 25, Abraham is the main player, right? In 25, 26, 27, we see Isaac. Isaac doesn't get a whole lot of white space in the scripture. But he's one of those patriarchs. Jacob. We see Jacob's story goes all the way up pretty much through the end of the book. Primarily, though, up through about 36. And then once 37 hits, then we're talking about the life of Joseph primarily from 37 through 50. So primitive history and patriarchal history. Genesis serves as a border within which the Christian story is pieced together. A border within which the Christian story is pieced together. If you, if you get Genesis, you get the border within everything else that, that happens in the Scripture. Okay? Genesis is not only a border within which the Christian story is pieced together, but it's also the frame. It's the frame in which the Christian story is viewed. We view the Christian story through a particular frame. Okay? And Genesis gives us the frame through which we view the Christian story. Genesis also provides the necessary foundation upon which the Christian story gets built. Okay? You see these word pictures. I'm hoping that, that, that is helpful for you to understand uh, the power in many ways and significance of Genesis. Kuko in his book, he's talking about the story of reality. He says something about a puzzle, and I thought it'd be helpful just to have a puzzle. This is a, it's a wonderful little picture of a little town, and it's got some of those like minuscule, tiny pieces that you can't hardly see. And and you know if if you were just to put it out here for just a moment and have it on the table, it's important we get all the pieces out and uh, just kind of let that sit there for just a moment. But he presents the picture of a pile. Of puzzle pieces. It says dump a puzzle. And you'll see what the Christian puzzle looks like for most believers. For most believers, it's just a pile of pieces. Pile of pieces. He says they never put the pieces of their puzzle together in any orderly way to allow them to see Clearly, the big picture. He says, as a result, they don't know if they're missing some important pieces. They also don't know if there are pieces of other puzzles, bits of other worldviews that are mixed in by accident that don't fit into their picture. Or they might get confused, he says, when other worldviews take some of the Christian pieces and try to fit them into their worldview pictures. So you have this pile of pieces, this random, random scattered pieces. And then you have an orderly border of a puzzle. It's put together. It's in place. It's providing all the parameters and all the framework for all that's yet to come. Genesis completes the border. Genesis 
as a border or a frame then acts as a foundation upon which everything else to come is built. Notice how the Christian story begins, and I appreciate this passage being read this morning. But the Christian story begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it begins. And I want to share with you some helpful starting points for this book. These were helpful to me as I was reading uh, an excerpt of this. Helpful, so I'd like to share them with you as they're connected to Genesis 1, the beginning. First of all, notice that the Christian story begins with a person. Begins with a person. I've jotted these down over here. I tried to jot just some familiar notes over here for you. As I'm talking, you'll probably see some of these over here. But the Christian story begins with a person, not a thing. Begins with a person, not a thing. And Kukul writes, he says, that's because God existed before he made anything else. And he himself was never made. Before anything else was there, God was there. The universe is not eternal, but God is. He's an everlasting spirit with no beginning, no end. He does not have a body like you and me. The story we're talking about here from God's word, the story does not start with gods or with physical objects like the sun or the moon. It starts with one individual, finite, perfect person. A person, not a thing. Here's the second thing. The Christian story is all about God. Not only does it begin with a person, not a thing, but it's all about God. God is the central character, person in this story. And listen, he goes on, he says, the story does not start with us because the story is not about us. I don't know if I can say that one loud enough. The story is not about us. Yes, we have a part to play. I believe this is instructive. What happens when little Johnny doesn't get that giant sucker that he's clamoring for at the store? What happens? You've seen it. I know you've seen it. Some of you maybe have seen it firsthand. He starts to cry. Why? He wants it. Why? Because he likes suckers. He likes candy. He likes sugar. He likes what it does to him. But what's a parent to do? Johnny's crying dreadfully loud in the grocery store. And others now are starting to watch. A twinge of embarrassment is beginning to set in with the parents. Some of you are smiling. You've been there. Johnny keeps on crying. He wants that sucker. Now it's possible that Johnny goes on and on about the sucker. But the truth is... Johnny cries about a lot of things. Johnny might not be able to talk yet. He might not be able to speak all that well and communicate all that well, but he knows how to get what he wants. You see, Johnny has already learned that life is all about him. If I just cry long enough, if I just cry loud enough, my daddy and my mommy will give me what I want. It's worked on countless occasions. 
If I just crank up the volume on my crying, that sucker will be mine any moment. I use this example of Johnny to point out how upside down our view of the Bible, and in particular our view of Genesis is. You see, because Genesis begins by explaining who's in charge. It begins with a person, not a thing. It begins with God. It begins by showing us who the central character is. The Christian story does not start with us because the story is not about us. We are a people who live largely like the story is all about us. We may not cry like Johnny, but we clamor for attention and we do what we can to get what we want, to satisfy our wants, to satisfy our desires. Listen, Genesis teaches us a fundamental truth. The Bible is not primarily written to cater to you and to me. The Bible starts in the right place, church, with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. This book is about God. It's about who he is. It's about what he's doing. It's about what he has done. It's about what he is going to do. You see, because he's the king, we're his subjects, and the big picture of the Bible speaks of him ruling and reigning over a kingdom. It's hard to fit the pieces in the puzzle It's hard to look and see through the frame. It's hard to build rightly upon the foundation when we don't see God rightly. He's the main attraction. From beginning to end, this is about Him. Now, I was reading something that tied into this and it was talking about that verse that gets thrown out usually about this time, but graduation time. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Wonderful verse when it's put in its proper context. But perhaps if we understand that this is about God, perhaps a better rendering is not so much the focus of God having a plan for your life, but your life fitting into God's plan. Third thing he says about this Christian story. In this Christian story, everything belongs to God. He goes on and says, since God made everything out of nothing, it all belongs to him. He has proper authority to rule over all because none of it would exist without him. So Genesis begins with a person, right? Not a thing. It's it's about God, primarily. And everything is God's. He made it. By the way, that includes you and me. There are implications there, aren't there, when we come to an understanding that he made us. We are his. We belong to him. But not in some, uh, just like, like anything else in this world. We are, uh, in, in, a, uh, in a relational way, we belong to him as a son or a daughter would to a parent, right? Because he's also a father. He's not just a creator. He is the creator. He's the potter. He's the sovereign king. He's the ruler. Some people might ask, well, how do I know that he made all this? How do I know? And you might be inclined to to just shoot back. How do you know he didn't make all this? I, I would turn to Hebrews 11, 3. And there we read, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed 
The worlds were framed. By the way, that, uh, that word has in mind uh, perfected or outfitted. The worlds were outfitted by the word of God. He spoke, right? Let there be light. He spoke. It came to be. And it was good. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God outfitted the world by his word. That's pretty amazing. I think for some of you in here, how long it takes for you to select an outfit. Notice I didn't say female or male. I didn't go there. All I'm saying is that God outfitted the entire world. How many days? Six days. The entire world. He outfitted it. He perfected it. He put it all together in six days. That's amazing to think about. By faith, we understand. This this faith that's spoken of in Hebrews 11, I love this because it applies retroactively to what God did in creation right here from the book of Genesis. By faith, we understand. It all belongs to God. I didn't see him make things, but by faith, I understand that the worlds were framed by his spoken word. came to be. It's wonderful. And the fourth and last one up there on the board is that in this Christian story, God is distinct from the rest of creation. It says nature, nature is not God. Rather, God made nature. The planet is not a person in this story, right? That's a different story. In this story, the planet is a thing. The sun and the moon are not beings to be worshipped. They do not have names. They have functions. They're things, not God's. So as you take a road trip through Genesis and you continue on through the books of Moses, you begin to see clearly that God is running things. He chooses a people, a group of people we know as Israel, right? The Hebrews, God's chosen people. And he's working through his people to accomplish his redemptive plan. And this redemptive plan traces a thread of the Bible. At the beginning of my Bible, I've written down something that I read a while, long while back. And it's, it's really the, the one whole story of the Bible. And it's this, in short, God provides salvation for his people through his son. God provides salvation for his people through his son. Shortly after the sin of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord is pronouncing a curse on the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, which is oftentimes referred to as the first gospel, Right? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Years later, Jesus would come. Jesus would be born of a woman. He would die. His head would be bruised. In fact, Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. For our iniquities. But three days after he died, he was raised and he bruised the serpent's head. He conquered Satan's death grip and he freed the captives. He set at liberty the prisoners. Amen? That's a good thing. That's, that's, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what he did. 
And the evil one, the Bible says, holds sway for a time here on earth. And Revelation, the last book in this Bible, gives us the final ending of the devil. I share this with you right now on the first road trip through the scriptures so that you have a context of his ultimate destination. Here's where he's going to be, ultimately. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Which is twice in one message I'm talking about fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. That's where the devil's going to be. That's where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night forever and ever. That's eternal torment. It reminds me of a song. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's the one word that's just going to... What is it? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. I was trying to think, you know, that's like the answer to most of the questions, right? You know, it's, it's but as, as you're thinking about, is there another word? You know, Jesus obviously is the person. I was also thinking of the word uh, the cross, the cross, right? Or the tomb, you know, those, those pieces that go right along with Jesus. But one little word shall fell him. Jesus shared in our likeness, the Hebrew writer says, he became man taking on flesh and bones that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's Hebrews 2.14. So looking through the frame of Genesis, we see God already at work bringing about salvation through his son. And Ralph shared some of that this morning from Genesis 3. The same chapter that sin occurred is the same chapter... That God's already got a redemptive plan in order, working, moving. Isn't that great about God? We see God preserving his people through a flood. He scatters his people at the Tower of Babel. He calls out a people through Abraham and promises to bless all the families of the earth in Abraham. He continues to reinforce the promise of a land and many descendants through Isaac and Jacob. And through Joseph, God calls his people into Egypt where shortly they will be before Pharaoh. So Genesis is origins, generations, covenants. Genesis moves from the Fertile Crescent to the land of Canaan, to the land of Egypt. Genesis serves as a, as a border, a border from within which the Christian story is linked together. Genesis is a frame through which the Christian story is viewed. Genesis is a foundation upon which the Christian story gets built. Genesis begins with a person, not a thing. Genesis begins with God, our King. It begins with an understanding that everything is God's. It begins and it tells us that God is distinct from his creation. And through the frame of Genesis, church, we see God's creativity in Genesis 1 and 2. We see God's grace in Genesis 6, 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Remember that? We see God's righteousness Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as what? Righteousness. We see in the scripture God's promise fulfilled in 21 verse 1. The Lord did for Sarah, Abraham's wife, as he had spoken. The, the son of promise was Isaac. We see God's electing love and his choosing of the younger Jacob over Esau. right? And we see God's providence orchestrating all things through the life of Joseph. 
God sent me before you, Joseph said to his brothers, to preserve life. He says at the end in chapter 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it all about as it is this day to save many people alive. The providence of God. You see, the gospel pulls greatly from this book of the Bible, church. We must not add to it nor subtract from what's here. The gospel includes, listen, the gospel includes the creation account. A right understanding of how we got here. The gospel even includes bad news. How sin entered the picture. Genesis accounts for sin through the one man, Adam. Read Romans 5, 12 and following. You'll see sin entered the world through one man. And through that sin, that's where we get death. Death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what it says in Romans 5, 12. It's all pointing back to what happened right here in Genesis. The gospel at its core is good news. And so I'd like to end with these gospel threads. There's three scriptures up here. This is how we're going to end. In fact, every road trip, it's important for us to have some gospel thread for us to weave in. Where's Jesus at? Where do we get Jesus in these these scriptures here, in these books, as we're journeying through? And I believe Genesis 1.26, as we see him, Jesus as creator. In fact, we can uh, probably even add to that. He's not only creator, but he's also sustainer. Uh, Hebrews 1 would tell us that very thing. He's upholding all things. He's sustaining all things, but he's a creator. God said, let us make man in our image, in according to our likeness, our. It's the Trinitarian plural. It's God. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see the Holy Spirit in verse 2 of Genesis. He's hovering over the waters. They're there in the beginning, all three of them. Gospel thread number one is Jesus as creator. Colossians 1 tells us that by Jesus all things were created. All things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things consist. Here's a second piece to the thread of the gospel. It's in Genesis 3. It was shared this morning. I won't belabor it. But just to say this, that Jesus is the seed that's referred to in Genesis 3.15. He's the seed who would one day come to earth to bruise the serpent's head, Satan himself, conquering death, securing victory for his blood-bought people. And the third one is Genesis 22, 13 and 14. Ralph, we think alike in these. Uh, you shared a couple of these. These are, these are the threads of the gospel. It's hard to miss these as you're reading Genesis. Jesus as our substitute. Not only is he a creator, sustainer, not only is he the seed that was going to one day come, but he's also our substitute. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. There behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. Here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the phrase, instead of, instead of. Well, what's so big about that? That's substitutionary language. He he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. It's a great picture of what was to come. Because you see, the wages of our sin is what? Death. What we really deserve because of our sin is death. But what God does through his son Jesus is he 
allows his son to take our place. And we see the picture of Christ going to the cross and dying on our behalf, a sin substitute. We see Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 really lays that out for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, we've come to the end of this particular road trip. And if I had a guitar at this point, I would start strumming it. It's a line of a familiar song. I'm sure as I go, you'll pick up the familiarity of the song. But as as I was thinking about the beginning, it it reminded me of this song. And and forgive me, it's it's not an old hymn. But it goes like this. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. You see, you're laughing, you know the song too. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. The first three notes just happen to be Do, Re, Mi. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. You see, opening Genesis, we're starting at the very beginning. And not only is it a very good place to start, It's a very necessary place to start. It's the frame through which we view the entire Christian story. Basic to understanding the whole Bible is a return to the very beginning. So one more time I'll say it as we've got these pictures here. Genesis serves as a border. The puzzle picture, the puzzle border serves as a border within which the Christian story is linked together. Genesis is a frame through which we view the Christian story. And Genesis is a foundation upon which the Christian story is built. As a church, I'd like for us just to read that first verse together of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning... Oh, wait, you've got to do this with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word. I thank you for this first book of the Bible. Foundational in so many ways. Help us, Lord, as we live here in the remaining days to treat your word with the awe and respect that it's called for. Father, we would be able to see these gospel threads throughout each of the book that we come to, each of the road trips, each of the journeys we make through the scripture, Lord, that we'd be able to see you and not miss the main attraction through this. Help us always to remember, Lord, that this is about you. This book is about you. You are the central person in this book. Everything belongs to you, including us. So, Lord, that ought to make a difference in how we live this life and how we steward things and steward uh, the the property that we have and steward our own children that have been gifted to us. Lord, we thank you that we can see and view and build upon uh, through this book of Genesis and see the, the work that you have done, 
see and read about the history. Father, I, I thank you that we can come to know you and grow in you and our understanding as we take these things to heart. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to teach us and minister to us. Show us, Lord, your truths as we take these road trips this summer through the scriptures. This is your word. And I know, Lord, it's your heart that we would have your word hidden within us, that it would be in our heart, that it would renew our minds. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone here that as we open the word, it wouldn't just be an opening to the book of Genesis. Oh, yeah, I know that story. I know that Bible story. But, Lord, help us to open it afresh with an understanding that you're speaking and have spoken and desire to do a great work through us. You desire to teach us the story through the lens of Genesis. You desire to build us in our faith through what's here in Genesis. And you desire to to work within the parameters of this book of Genesis in order to grow us and mature us in our understanding of who you are. So Lord, I pray we would not subtract, not add to, but take what you've given to us in this book of Genesis. It is a great place to start. It's a great beginning in a very necessary place. Thank you for bringing us here. And Lord, we look forward to another road trip next week as we travel to the book of Exodus, filled with a lot of other uh, wonderful truths for us to explore. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this seed. We thank you, Lord, for the one who is the creator and sustainer. And we thank you, Lord, for the one who serves as our sin substitute. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.